This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome to the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. Welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. My name is Cheryl Peach and I'm a program scientist here at the Birch Aquarium. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome this evening's speaker, Dr. Neil Driscoll. Uh, Neil is a scientist who's been here for the last 15 years. He's a professor of geosciences and actually uh, the person who runs the geosciences program, that is the graduate and undergraduate programs that focus on geosciences um, at Scripps. Uh, Neil's um, somebody who's uh, quite familiar to me. Um, he has a long and varied career. Uh, but he did start his career um, long ago uh, with an undergraduate degree in geology from University of New Hampshire, a master's degree from University of Rhode Island, and then um, a PhD degree from Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Neil has held uh, teaching and faculty positions at Lamont, also at Woodhull Oceanographic Institution, um, and he then came here to Scripps uh, where he holds the position of professor. So I want you all to um, give a warm welcome to Neil as he uh, talks to us a little bit about assessing the offshore geohazards in Southern California. And Neil, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here at the Birch again. I'm kind of exhausted listening to all that education that I've had in my past. So why do we want to assess these geohazards offshore? So this map here is a recent bathymetry map that we collected of the seafloor, and I'm going to tell you how to read these later on in the talk. So why do we do this? Why do we care? Well, last I looked, a lot of people live here along the coast, okay? All right. Look at the population demographics for California. Look at Southern California here, okay? So this is population per square mile, 5,000. This is from the 2010 census. We have lots of people that live by the coast, okay? We also have lots of infrastructure that's along the coast that we want to understand, is it built to withstand these hazards? Is the design basis sufficient? Earthquakes cause loss of life and destruction. So here, this is the Songs plant looking from Trailhead 1. This is the power plant in Carlsbad. This is the Encina wastewater project. Okay, all of these infrastructure along the coast. So it's important for us to understand the hazards offshore. We can model the ground motion associated with earthquakes. This took four days to run on the supercomputer here at UCSD. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to model an earthquake and ground shaking for a 7.7 .7 magnitude earthquake that starts down in the Salton Sea at that prominent place, Bombay Beach. Great vacation spot. <laughs> so here, the fault's going to start here, and it's going to propagate up to the north and what I want you to do is watch the letters because we're going to show the ground motion okay, by the deformation of the map. So here we go. So the fault's going to start. This is time up here. It's going to start and it's propagating northward along this, this fault trace. So it's going to continue to rupture, propagating north. And this is the kind of rock and roll that you'd experience as you're thinking about drop, cover, and hold on. Now we get up to Riverside, and now we have like a bow wake in front of this. We're not rupturing anymore. Let's watch LA, okay? We're 90 seconds into the earthquake, okay? LA is still ringing, okay? All right, we're now coming up onto a minute and a half, all right? So we can model the ground motion that's associated with certain size earthquakes. We've made great understanding on propagation direction, okay? As Cheryl pointed out, this Thursday at 10.16 a.m., on the 16th of October, there'll be the great shakeout. 
um, one year in my class said Strat, I ran out of the room and left the students there. 2009, the great shakeout. They all died. None of them, they, they, they just were, where did you go? <laughs> so let's, let's just look at some of the historic earthquakes. But I'd like to take a moment just to welcome the scouts of the 739. Would you stand up, guys? So this is, uh, this is a group of scouts from Fallbrook. They've done a lot of uh, activities in the last few days. They were out at the crack of dawn digging up minerals and salt beds. And this is one of the activities they're doing to get their uh, achievement medal in geology. So this is the next generation of geologists. Thanks for coming, guys. Okay, so here, earthquakes. Let's look at some of the largest historic earthquakes in California. The Fort Teon earthquake back in 1857 located here. We estimate that it was about a 7.9. Given the time, there weren't many people here, so only two died about six to nine meters of lateral displacement. Six to nine meters, okay? We come over and we look at the Lone Pine earthquake here in 1872. Again, we estimate a magnitude 7.6 to eight. We estimate these magnitudes by the amount of slip and the length of the rupture, how I'm gonna to explain to you in a few slides. This had about 10 to 15 meters of lateral displacement and about four to five meters vertical shown here in the scarp. This is right east of the Sierras. 1906, Great San Francisco earthquake, magnitude 7.8, huge loss of life, okay? A lot of it by infrastructure, okay? We're developing instruments nowadays for early warning so we can shut off some of this infrastructure, maintain pressure in water mains, shut off gas lines, high-speed rail. So these devices we're building today are gonna to give us those valuable seconds so that we can make informed decisions. We can leverage and marshal our resources. So let's look at some of the more recent earthquakes. This is the World Series earthquake. Uh, who was playing in this World Series? Oakland and the Giants. So every year the Giants get in the World Series. Yeah. Okay, what I want to bring to your attention is there's a thing called liquefaction where the sediment loses its strength by the shaking and water content and the water can't get out. And this extends the reach and damage zone of an earthquake. So here, we're going to watch here. This earthquake started down in Santa Cruz, about 100 kilometers from the Marina District. This is shaking here. Now watch as the blue starts coming up into the Bay Area sediments, just like LA. This Bay Area sediments and fill uh, is conducive to liquefaction and amplifying shaking. So here, 100 kilometers away, look at the damage here, okay? Okay, so we're all the way from here, all the way up here, and it's only very minor shaking, okay? So a lot of buildings collapsed, and um, it increases the damage zone of an earthquake, liquefaction. This is the Northridge earthquake. So the previous earthquakes I've been showing you are what we refer to as right lateral, strike slip, where the blocks move past one another. The Northridge earthquake was along a fault that we didn't know existed, a blind thrust that was beneath the surface. Thrust faults have convergence, and one block rides over the other, and you can notice this deformation and uplift. We have accelerations due to hanging wall effects in this block and this uplift that aren't usually observed in strike-slip faults. Okay, so the Northridge Fault here had high measured G. In fact, some of the highest measured G before some of these New Zealand earthquakes that took place last couple of years. 72 killed, a lot of bridges collapsing, roads, fires, things like this. This plot over here just shows you how we know from the earthquakes 
what the style is, whether they're sliding by one another or whether they're coming together and converging. Okay. So where's the future earthquake going to be? So here, this is our friend the San Andreas Fault. Okay, magnitude 7.7 .7 is what I showed you modeled. The Hayward Fault goes right underneath the goalposts in Cal Stadium. Okay, um, and this reminded me of the, remember the play Cal against Stanford, the play to beat the band? Do you remember that play? Number of laterals and then here's the band coming on and he ran through the band and got the touchdown and it was the play to beat the band. Sorry for the digression. <laughs> West Tahoe, some of the work we're doing up here, um, there's potential of a magnitude 7.3. Wasatch, okay? Again, potential of a magnitude 7. San Jacinto, right west of the San Andreas, also could have a magnitude 7. The problem is we can't predict where earthquakes are going to occur or when they're going to occur. What we do is we develop probabilities in areas that we think the likelihood of an earthquake is going to take place in the next decade, or next 20 years, or next 30 years. So if you look at this plot, the red zones, the probability of an earthquake in 30 years is pretty high. Okay? So you can see these faults. Okay? So we're looking and trying to understand what's the likelihood of these faults rupturing in the future because we can't predict it. So how do we do this? Well, we know that the Pacific plate is moving by the North American plate at about 50 millimeters per year, about the rate your fingernails grow. Okay. This slip is partitioned on a number of faults. So let's start from the east. San Andreas Fault carries a lion's share of this slip, about 22 millimeters per year. The San Jacinto, about 12. Elsinore, five. Then we drop the Rose Canyon, Newport Englewood, about one to one and a half millimeters per year. Palos Verdes, about three millimeters per year. San Diego Trough, about 1.5. Coronado, we don't have much constraints. San Clemente, again, we don't have much constraints. So I'm gonna tell you how we come up with these estimates onshore, and then I'll show you what we've been doing offshore and some of the research we've been conducting. So here, this last picture I showed you, showed you these beautiful black lines of faults that were continuous. Faults are anything but continuous. They're segmented and complicated, shown here in these red identified faults offshore, like the Newport Englewood Rose Canyon. Okay, here, the San Mateo Carlsbad Trend, Coronado Bank Fault, San Diego Trough Fault. Here's, this is the San Diego Bay Fault Zone. So you can see that these faults are complicated and they're segmented. Okay, so the size of the earthquake depends on how many of these segments can link up and the earthquake can rupture and jump to the next segment. And we know as the segment distances grow and the distance from each other, that rupture, through going rupture, gets more difficult. Okay? So the more segments we can get to rupture, the larger the earthquake. The strength of the rocks dictate how thick the layer is or the fault that ruptures what we call the seismogenic zone. Okay? All right? So let's just do a little geology 101. Talk about faults. So here, strike slip faults are usually high angle, okay, close to vertical. Here we're showing a left lateral fault. This block is moving this way. This block is moving this way. If you were standing here looking at this block, it would be deflected to your left. We have indicators in the rocks that tell us some of these directions, They're called slick and slides, because these faults gouge the rock and they leave a fingerprint of how the fault movement was carried out. We also have faults that have what we call dip-slip offset. 
So the block is moving down and moving along. So the block does something like this. So it's not just this, it's that, okay? So the block moves with two components. It has a strike-slip component and a dip-slip component, okay? So here, when we have these, the slick and slides are not parallel to this face or that face, okay? Because this block is moved down and it's traversed, okay? So we call these oblique slip offsets. So how do we know how far the fault moved? Well, in historic times, we have anthropogenic indicators like offset roads, fences, things like this. So here, we can see how much the road has been offset, and we can reconstruct what we call piercing points or points that we can understand how far the blocks have moved. Before historical times, you know, and during historical times, you've got fences offset. This is the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, a photo by G.K. Gilbert, famous geologist. And this is about eight feet of offset on the fence, okay? It, it is still standing. So as we go back in geologic time, how do we get these piercing points? Well, we can use geological features like stream channels. Here's a perfect example of a stream channel being offset along the San Andreas Fault. So this tells us how far the channel has been offset and gives us an indicator of the rupture distance. This is work we did out in Mecca Hills on the northern side of the Salton Sea. The San Andreas is running right along this red line here. And we can look at these gullies and their offsets and we can measure that very quantitatively with light detecting and ranging. So these are little shrubs in the drainage. And what we do is we look at the, the channel here above the fault, below the fault, and we measure that distance. We don't want to measure this feature called the shutter ridge because that's showing us the growth through time of this offset. So here we have a measurement about four meters of offset. We also want to date the, the timing of this. Is this recording one earthquake? Is this recording two earthquakes? So here, in addition to measuring the offset, we want to know the age of the earthquake. So this is for the South Hayward Fault. Number of earthquakes here, going from one back to 11. This is calendar date here. And what you notice is there's a certain recurrence interval. I get earthquakes. I haven't had one for a while. Okay? That's what we try to do. So we want to look at the most recent event, 1868, and we can look at different trends or recurrence intervals, and this is one standard deviation, and we can project when the next big earthquake should happen. Hmm, 2008. Guess we missed that one. <laughs> so here, what we're looking for and trying to do is trying to figure out when was the most recent event? And what's the timing in between events? So that we can get a better likelihood of when the next event is gonna happen. So how do we measure these? Well, um, colleagues at San Diego State, this is Gordon Seitz, Tom Rockwell over there is involved and does this type of work. We do onshore, we do trenching. We trench across the fault. So the San Andreas Fault is right here where this ladder is. Okay, this block is moving to the south, this block is moving to the north, and what we do is we painstakingly document all of the ruptures and breakages, and we date them using organic material and radiocarbon dating. So now we have number of events, and we have ages of those events, and we have the most recent event, from which we can put together these probability functions. This is tough work onshore. I'm going to show you it gets even tougher offshore. So I'm going to show you data in two different types. I'm going to show you map views, so I want you to think of looking out like at Kilimanjaro out of the airplane window or New York. You're looking down on the surface. So I'm going to show you surficial maps. Then I'm going to show you cross sections. 
I, I just drove this road this summer and I almost crashed. Geologists have the highest rate of accidents and death on the roads than anybody. So if you see a guy with his neck out the window and stuff looking at rocks, probably a geologist. This is right outside of Palmdale. This is Route 14. And this is the, the deformation crossing the San Andreas Fault. Whew. It just it makes these rocks look like they're toothpaste, like Aquafresh, okay? All bent up. All right, so now, this is one of those vertical sections that I'm gonna show you, this cross section. This is the seafloor here, and here you can see the layers are offset, faulted. So what we do is we go over and measure the offset, and what you'll notice is the deeper offset is greater than the surface offset up here, and then when we get up near the seafloor, it's even less. We call these growth faults. So the, the oldest fault records earthquake one, earthquake two, earthquake three. So it, it's summarizing all of the offsets. And a little cartoon here made by one of my former students that's now at the USGS shows this offset. So we have a fault. We fill it up. We have parallel sediments, no fault. We have a fault. We fill it up. So what we can do through time is look at the offset of these layers. We can date them, and we can establish the most recent event, and we can establish the age of older events so we get a recurrence interval. So now let's jump to the data, the fun part. So this paper was just accepted for publication last week, and I'm gonna show you some hot off the press data that we collected on the script ships. This is the Melville. This is my favorite ship of all ships, and she's going to be retired here. And she did a great history of service to oceanography as part of Scripps fleet. So with this system, I'm going to collect swath data that's going to give us this map view. We're looking out the window of the plane. And I'm going to give you cross sections where we're going to look like that road cut on Route 14 of the San Andreas. Before I do that, I'm just going to show you that we spent months 2013. So I'm going to only show you a snapshot of some of the data. We had like five cruises out here off the borderlands starting last summer in through the winter. These yellow lines are seismic profiles that we collected across all these faults that are shown by black lines that were where the faults used to be interpreted to occur. We also collected the first academic 3D data set a P-cable data set off our new horizon. We had to do special modification to the fantail and attach winches and, and extra bulkhead material. But here we're towing these suite of parallel cables, P-cables, okay, 14 of them here. And each one of them has hydrophones so we can make and paint a three-dimensional picture of the seafloor layers down to depths of kilometers. And we just mowed the lawn back and forth here for over a month, right? Back and forth. So I'd know, I'd get up and I'd see the coast on port, and I'd go to sleep and I'd see the coast on starboard. Back, and it was just like mowing the lawn, okay? The backbone of this group is the students, okay? So here, they're not always this nutty. This is Valerie Sahakian. I still don't know what she's doing up on the top of the Sierras. I, you know, maybe she's trying to get hit by lightning. <laughs> this here is Shannon Klotzko uh, on our cruise last summer in the Arctic where we had ice liberty, hit golf balls, pressed dumbbells, baseball, and, and we got to drink from some of these leads. It was some of the best water you've ever tasted. This is James Holmes, graduate student here, um, just doing a great job on working on this 3D data set. And this is a postdoc here, Jane Borman up at UNR, who works with my colleague and co-investigator in all of this, Graham Kent. And so uh, we, we have a great team, and it makes for great research. The students do all the work. Okay. So now, here's this first bathymetry map. It's the first continuous swath bathymetry map from San Pedro Channel down to the border, out to San Clemente, 30-mile bank, all right, 
imaging these features, what I'd like you to know is one of the most linear features is this trend right in front of San Clemente, which is the San Clemente Fault. When we blow this up, what we notice here is this is the San Gabriel Canyon system. Look at these, they look like rivers underwater. These have never been exposed subarily. They're much too deep for the glacial eustatic fluctuation. Yet they ex exhibit these bends and meanders and cutoffs. And you can see this channel's cut off here. And I'm going to show you some of these features. Like, look at this knoll, this bathymetric high. It's actually sliced by a fault. Okay? But let's zoom in now and just look. This little block here was liberated. Look at this. This block skidded down this slope off Washwin Knoll and came to rest here. Okay? So here you can see this cutoff canyon and this new canyon formed over here. So Washwin Knoll, what causes these features, these knolls, these, these roughnesses on the seafloor in Southern California in an area we call the Inner California Borderlands? We can see them all, the, all over the place. There's this Crespi Knoll. Here we have this, this dissected bathymetric high by this fault and you can see traces of the fault running right up and controlling some of the drainage. This here is a shoal coming off Catalina Island, and another fault is right here along the southwest side of Catalina. This here is looking from 30 Mile Bank, looking across San Diego Trough. It feels like you're on the edge of the Sierras, looking down into this big Owens Valley. Okay? This is our canyon here, the La Jolla Canyon, Carlsbad, Oceanside, and so a lot of this roughness offshore is something that has been uh, argued about recently in the literature and at meetings. So what I want you to look at here is the inner California borderlands has shallows and deeps. And how do we explain that? Well, Rivero and his group in 2000, 2011, published the idea that offshore Southern California there was this Oceanside Blind Thrust, much like the Northridge Thrust, okay? And it deforms and faults streaming off of this, splaying off of this thrust, actually cause all the deformation, the recent deformation we see in the Inner California borderlands. So this block is moving up over this block, so the shoreline and associated regions are in the hanging wall of this thrust. And we know from recent modeling that the hanging wall and thrusts have increased ground motion. Okay? So in this model, the whole shoreline is above this large regional thrust. Just to remind you, here's what a thrust looks like versus a strike-slip earthquake. And their model came out soon after the Northridge earthquake, and it was embraced that we might have some of these thrusts offshore. So here, in light blue, I've shown the extent of this thrust down to like 14 kilometers from where it daylights out on the margin. And here's the Coronado Bank thrust. So in their model, they have two giant thrusts that are explaining the deformation we see offshore. Thrusts have large areas of the fault. Okay, remember, fault magnitude scales to area and slip. And when you look at the old data that they used, you really have to have uh, a lot of um, interpretive skills to see some of these surfaces, like this fault here, what they call the Oceanside Thrust. It's hard to see over here. There's, there's nothing that you can see when you're down here in the data. So this is the uninterpreted data. This is a kilometer. This is about a kilometer here. And here's their interpretation of this data. This old industry data is very choppy and smudged. It's not high resolution. So Graham Kent and I went and recovered some of this data so we could reprocess it. So here's the old data. Here's this new data that we reprocess using supercomputers and modern processing techniques. And I'd like to just show you a little bit of what we found. So here, we reprocessed all of these lines and we've interpreted them 
and trying to understand if this Oceanside blind thrust, some of the predictions it makes, can be observed in the data. So I'm going to show you this line, 422. This is San Mateo's, um, San Onofre Creeks up here. We're right offshore. There's Dana Point to give you some idea where you are. I'm going to show you this red line first. So this is Chevron 4522. That's 1.5 kilometers, and this is about uh, 500 meters. Okay? And in the sediment, this is about a kilometer. So there's high vertical exaggeration. These are not black diamonds. These are the bunny slopes. Okay? So the slopes here on, are on the order of about 4 to 6 degrees, not 45. Okay? If I plotted them at true scale, there's not a, a screen big enough to show you the whole profile. What I'd like you to notice, here's the uninterpreted, here's the interpreted. This is some of the features that have been used to identify this blind thrust, this folding and deformation. And what I'd like you to notice is above that is all these flat-lying layers. Flat-lying layers tell me it's not deformed, okay? It's not been folded. This deformation, if it did exist, is old. These layers are on the order of hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years old, okay? So if this feature does exist, it's very old and it hasn't moved for a long time, okay? And here is just a grayscale showing you, hopefully, that these flat-lying layers aren't folded and deformed like these layers underneath or faulted like the layers over here. So if this feature is caused by a blind thrust on this blue surface and this block going across this block beneath and moving to the west, it hasn't happened for a long time. This is just a blow-up trying to convince you of these flat-lying layers that show little to no deformation. It's quiescent. And here's the interpretation. Okay? So above this yellow line, everything is flat and it's filling space. Let's look at another line now here, 4520, which Im images the internal character of the block better. So here's this rotated block where they want to have this thrust come up in daylight and deform this block and rotate it. Okay? Well, one thing you notice is the thrust has a lot of relief on it. Usually thrusts are smooth surfaces okay? because you're grinding and you're pushing one block over another. So having a lot of relief on your thrust fault would create enormous kind of extension and compression as the thrust went over this swale and ridge topography. Again, look at this top layer. It's not deformed. It comes into this block and onlaps it and is flat as a pancake. Okay? The deformation, if it is caused by a blind thrust, is old. Now remember, the thrust model wants to have shortening in the east-west direction. Okay? Let's look at a profile now that goes from north to south. So if we look at this profile, north is here on the right, scale 1.5, again this is a kilometer, south is here on the left. We have this surface that comes up and then deepens and goes down like this. This is the top of the Catalina basement. The block that we saw in the previous profile is actually moving south, not west as predicted by the Oceanside Blind Thrust Model. So here, this evidence suggests that the block is moving 90 degrees out of the predicted orientation it should be. Again, we see that it's very old and we do have what we believe is fluids coming out of this area. And this is just a blow up of this in rotation. Okay, and the interpretation. This is a 3D fence diagram that just captures that the motion of this block is to the south, not predicted by this model. Okay? So the geophysical data that we've acquired and reprocessed doesn't show evidence for an oceanside blind thrust. This lowers the earthquake hazard in our area markedly. Okay. We explain the highs and lows by offsets in the fault. Mount Soledad is a pop-up feature and stands high because we have a jog in the fault and compression. So here, 
When you have a right lateral fault with a left jog, you get compression. And you get the areas shown here that pop up. When you have a right lateral fault with a right jog, you get extension and you form a basin. Okay? So this is our preferred hypothesis. We don't believe there's evidence for an Oceanside blind thrust. And in my 30 years of doing science, I've never seen a fault go away. I've seen faults we find more. They're more complex. So this is the first time that I've seen new data bear on an issue where it doesn't support the existence of the Oceanside blind thrust. So we can take these big things away, and we're back to this. So I'm going to wrap up here quickly and just show you what we're trying to do with assessing some of the age of these faults. And I'm going to jump you out here to the San Diego Trough Fault Zone, and we're going to look at some of the data we just collected, some of this high-resolution data. And I just want to show you, you can pick that fault out. So here, this is about a kilometer, and this is five kilometers. But look at that discontinuity. That's the Palos Verdes Fault. Okay? And it shows up quite nicely. It looks like it offsets the seafloor, and we can, we can map this around. So here, what we're doing is we're trying to determine the faults. Now, this is down in the San Diego trough. This is the San Diego trough fault. This is 30-mile bank that I showed you before. This is that faulted high. And we can see some faults come to the seafloor and some don't. So we're building a relative stratigraphy of fault ages. Because not all the faults that are shown in the maps offshore are recent, okay, are active. We can go to the north and do the same thing. These faults don't make it to the seafloor. The red faults, we believe, make it to the seafloor. We can do the same thing in the Coronado Bank. We're steeped in data. This is the most comprehensive data set in the inner California borderlands that's ever been collected. Here's the results. So here, the black areas are active faults. Our research suggests that the San Diego trough fault connects up with the San Pedro fault up north and might make a longer fault. This might increase the hazard in LA. The faults here over here in orange are what we call inactive. The red are faults that offset the seafloor, but we know from the stratigraphy that the seafloor sediments there are very old. So we, we see them offset to the seafloor, but we don't think they're active. We'll continue doing this on the other faults in the study area. So this, this study is going on and has another year and a half. And what we want to do is finish assessing the offshore faults, the Newport Englewood Rose Canyon, Palos Verdes, we want to acquire cores to establish the history of faulting, getting back to this recurrence interval. This is a large piston core we used in the Arctic. We can recover 20 meters of sediment in these devices. And then we can date biological material and get radiocarbon dates. We want to create a comprehensive fault map for offshore that is age relevant. So the faults that are active are shown, and then another layer we show faults that are inactive and, and try to build up a, a, a chronological order of how the faults work and interact and, and these segments link. So here, I'd like to leave you with this thought. The new data we collected, the reprocessed data, the onshore terrace data that Tom Rockwell's working on corroborates our uh, our story that there's no geophysical evidence for an oceanside blind thrust. The features offshore can be explained by segments and fault interactions along releasing bends and uh, compressional bends. And finally, it appears that the San Diego trough fault links up with the San Pedro fault, and we're trying to look at calculations of what kind of earthquake that might generate. So with that, Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. The question was, should we renew our earthquake policies? I think what we're seeing um, in the offshore region is this is a small amount of the total slip budget on the Rose Canyon, Newport Englewood, um, San Diego Trough, Palos Verdes, Coronado Bank. And so um, 
I don't carry earthquake insurance. Yes, but I am earthquake prepared. And I do have, hopefully you all have an old pair of shoes under your bed. Because most people cut their feet by glass that's fallen picture frames, vases, things like that. Also have cash, flashlight, water, okay? Some stored canned food. Have numbers where you can contact people out of the region and let them know that you're okay, all right? Being prepared, not scared. I, I agree with Debbie completely. And, and we wanna try to um, maximize uh, our knowledge and resources. Yes, the, the question is, can an inactive fault become active and uh, active fault become inactive? In California, it's 10,000 years that if it offsets sediments that are 10,000 years old, we consider it active. Now, can an inactive fault become active? Absolutely, okay? But what we're trying to look at here is if it's been inactive for a very long time, um, then you don't have a recurrence interval. You can't apply some of the approaches I told you. But it doesn't rule out that it couldn't uh, become active and fault. So we can't predict earthquakes. Um, and, and it's uh, a lot of the processes and, and friction and um, micro asperities and things on faults are very difficult to, to understand. So good question. A blind thrust, what is a blind thrust was the question. A blind thrust is this thrust fault. Let me see if I can. So here, in this figure here, the thrust doesn't come all the way to the surface. So the deformation associated with the thrust has a surface expression, but the fault itself does not. So there lies the problem. You can't see it on the surface, surface offset. So unless you had some a priori knowledge it was there from subsurface imaging, you wouldn't know this fault existed until it ruptured and had a surface expression. You're welcome. Sorry if I didn't explain that clearly. Yes. Yes, the question was, the Fukushima earthquake caused a very large tsunami on the order of uh, 30, 40 meters. And this tsunami was devastating in Japan, and I think it raised uh, awareness around the world. And the question was, could the blind thrust create a tsunami? And a blind thrust, yes, could. But I think that the evidence that's emerging from this new data is uh, not supporting the existence of a blind thrust. So here in the California borderlands, south of Point Conception, we have shoals and deeps. So far field tsunamis were pretty protected because the tsunami wave builds up and then collapses. So it's like a natural baffle. But near field tsunamis caused by landslides like on 30 mile bank or off the, the shelf along the Rose Canyon during an earthquake, a slide, if it reaches a certain acceleration, can generate a tsunami, okay? So blind thrust could generate a tsunami, but here, we don't believe the data support that previous interpretation. And that was one of the big, that was an associated risk as well as increased uh, ground motion because of hanging wall effects. Yes? The question was, does, does the movie, the San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego super computer movie show liquefaction and it doesn't show direct evidence of liquefaction, it shows that there'd be enhanced ground motion that would last for a long time because it's on uh, marine basin fill. This would be a good mechanism to generate liquefaction. Uh, so my question was gonna be, is there anything similar in the San Diego area? So the question is, do we have similar sediments and types in the San Diego area that would lend themselves to this enhanced ground motion and liquefaction that's observed in the LA basin in these models? And the answer is yes. And a talk I gave here a few years ago brought that up, that the San Andreas Fault that could be triggered by uh, loading of water into the Salton Sea could actually 
trigger an earthquake and the shaking motion of the San Andreas to us is not much different than the epicenter from the Santa Cruz earthquake to the Marina District. So shaking when you're in bay fill with sand intercalated, which means my wife is going to kill me for that word, but um, it, it's sandwiched like an ice cream sandwich between clay layers. And so they're less permeable and the water can't get out and you start shaking it. And now it acts as a fluid and it has volcanoes of sand and where it evacuated from, your buildings start differentially subsiding. And if I shown that movie a little longer, um, it was showing buildings as you were watching the movie slowly creeping and deforming right in front of the people's eyes. And they were jamming two by fours under the building like they were going to save it. <laughs> so does, does that get to your question? Yes. Yeah, that was a big problem, the New Zealand quakes, and you could actually see cars that had settled down into the sediment. So, um, yeah, liquefaction increases the radius of destruction of an earthquake because you don't need as violent ground motion. You saw in that movie, the ground motion was on a low level, was nowhere near the ground motion at the epicenter. Okay, so we, we want to think about this. You had a question here, right? So the question was, uh, we have many states that are doing large-scale fracking, pumping water down into the rocks at depth, creating microfractures from which they release some of the fluids. And um, they don't have to right now, by law, disclose the fluids they pump into the ground, but it's causing micro-seismicity in earthquakes. The second part of the question was, um, are we building infrastructure so close to the ocean edge as to maybe uh, exacerbate some of these situations? So first, fracking um, is known to cause micro-seismicity. We've observed increased micro-seismicity in areas where there is fracking. We don't know, um, at it, could it be a trigger for some of these larger earthquakes? That's something that's being discussed. Okay. Loading or putting infrastructure on the shoreline, um, the strength of the plate, so these, the motion that we're largely accommodating in these earthquakes is tectonic motion between the Pacific and North American plate. So loading it vertically might have some influence, but most of the influence that's driving these fault systems is from sliding by one another. Okay. But we, we published a paper in Nature a few years back where um, when the Colorado River used to flow naturally into the Salton Trough and fill it up to 13 meters above sea level, it's now at about minus 70 meters, so almost like 85 meters, that that load of water on the plate would trigger faults in the sea that then would trigger the San Andreas. And the San Andreas is about 150 years beyond its seismic cycle, just about the length of time that we signed the Colorado River Compact in 1922 and manipulated water. Interesting, interesting coincidence. Other questions? Yes, back there. So the question is, the bathymetric survey showed these river-like features in areas where that depth is so deep that it wasn't exposed uh, subarily. And we know that the sea level goes up and down for the last like 2.7 million years by approximately 100 to 125 meters associated with glacial cycles. So you can get rivers like this on the shelf, which are shallower, but these are due to density flows where there's suspended sediment in the water. And therefore, it is flowing along the bottom and it's feeling the forces as it goes around small turns of having like a cut bank and erosion and a point bar, just like in a river. So because these density flows are flowing on the bottom, they actually scour out these canyons and they have many properties that are very similar to fluvial systems. River systems. <laughs> well, uh, imagine that all right, so question. So 
they were in Japan right after the Tohoku earthquake, and there was large aftershocks that followed, and, and the question is what causes the aftershocks? Imagine that you have a, a spring that you've pulled, and that spring's attached to a number of other springs. And I walk over with a pair of wire cutters, and I cut your spring. It, it fails. But now the other springs are in communication with that spring so that they propagate and you get loading of adjacent fault systems and, and it's a kind of a, a, a stress field around the major shock. Does, does that make sense? So it's other faults and other areas that are being impacted by that rapid release of stress into strain. Okay? And the aftershocks can go on for a long time and they can be strong. That was, that was a magnitude nine earthquake. That's, that's 100 times stronger than the earthquakes we're talking about here. 100 times stronger. Um, in Japan, their um, frequency of earthquakes is 10 times greater than ours. So 10 times an order of magnitude. So. Um, and, but their training and awareness is, is they have incredible drills and uh, are very prepared. So when, when this happened to them, it, it wasn't that they weren't prepared and hadn't really thought about the infrastructure needed. And that, that definitely raised awareness here in California. So the question is, with sea level rise, uh, glaciers melting, um, how might the rising sea level uh, change the loading and stress on these earthquakes. And that, that's something we're looking into. There's uh, lines of work that maybe tidal forces could actually be enough of some faults were very close to their tectonic loading. And what I mean by that is if a fault is toward the end of its seismic cycle and it's built up a lot of stress, then a smaller force might uh, be able to trigger that and have it strain. So loading of sea level on the shelf, on some of these shelf and slope faults, um, could definitely change the stress field and potentially uh, uh, trigger some faults. So we're looking into this, but it, there's a, a lot of complications with the structure of the faults. Um, faults that are strike-slip are slightly less uh, sensitive to this. Thrust faults and normal faults are slightly more sensitive orientation, things like this. So um, we're, we're looking into that clearly in the Salton Sea. We performed a study, others here at Scripps have performed studies trying to understand loading of hundreds of meters of water over a vast area, how that might change the stress field. We do know that when we remove water also from uh, during droughts from aquifers and um, you know, from artesian wells and things like this that we also change the stress state. So it's, it's both ways. Danielle, thank you for a great presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.